0: Our topic today, out of the book of Esther, Esther chapter one, we're starting a new series. First chapter has to do with Vashti, the nobility of Vashti. So a little background of where we've been in, in, in the timeline of history of where the book of Esther falls. Starts off, uh, we were in Israel and, and then Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Jerusalem and took us to Babylon. Then after 70 years, we were able to return, and that's where we start on this chart. At the return, uh, Cyrus was the leader of the king of the Persians, and he allowed us to start rebuilding the temple and, and allowed us to go back to Jerusalem, as was prophesied by Jeremiah, and Daniel prophesied of rebuilding of the temple. And so they were able to start rebuilding the temple, and that was under the auspices of the governor, Zerubbabel, and the Kohen Gadol, uh, Yeshua. And uh, there was some lapses in the building as there was opposition from neighboring groups that told us to stop, and various kings came and and made us stop. Um, God continued to encourage us through the prophecies of Haggai and uh, Zechariah that we covered here. And uh, you can see those, if you missed those, on shlomadventure.com and we were allowed to finish building the temple. And we also looked parts of the book of Ezra, the, book, the first chapters of Ezra, talk about that, even though it was long before Ezra was born, he wrote about it in the first part of his book, and so we covered some of that. And then begins this 57-year period of time, um, because, well, King Darius I comes in and lets us finish the building of the temple. And then we have 57 years where the Bible doesn't say anything. No prophet, no prophetesses, no... No messages, really, for the most part, going on except to the book of Esther. But in Israel, nothing is mentioned. Do you know why that is? Because they were doing good. It was right, doing right in sight of the Lord. And there was no need for a prophet to come and rebuke them. And so things were good. Things were good for 57 or so years. Uh, But in Persia, there was some problems. And thus the story of Esther takes place, because the Bible really only tells us about problem times. (laughs) It doesn't tell us so much about the good times. Uh, It's almost all about the bad times. And so, during in Esther's situation, there was a bad time going on in Persia, and that's where our story takes place, and that takes place just before Ezra comes along under King Xerxes. And so, Esther chapter 1, verse 1, tells us, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, this was... Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And so he has these both names, one the Hebrew name, one the Persian name. And, uh, and so he reigned over this huge territory, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That is huge. Here's what it looks like on a map. Uh, it was the largest kingdom, known kingdom, up till that time in history. And so India, and it always amazes me with some of these countries have the same name from way back then till now. Uh, so India way over there covering all of what's today's modern, uh, um, uh, Afghanistan, uh, well, let's see, what's next to India? I forgot to. All right, well, India, next to India, all the way through, uh, Pakistan, that's it, not Pakistan, is it Pakistan? Yeah, Pakistan, I think. Oh, whatever, horrible. Pakistan, um, Iraq, Iran, uh, Turkey to the north, uh, Jordan, Syria, and a good portion of today's uh, uh, Europe, and then down to Syria and Israel and um, Egypt and Libya. So again, a huge, huge amount of territory. Uh, Covering, and we didn't cover all the modern nations that would fall under that realm. So, under one nation, under one kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, ruling over all of that. And historians write about him. He's recorded, this king is recorded, Ahasuerus, in, in historical documents, most of them being written from the Greeks, which were his enemy. His father was in a battle with the Greeks, and he continued the battle with the Greeks, and he lost the battle. Uh, against the Greeks, and the historians tell us he had quite a temper, as we see in the Book of Esther. Uh, there was one battle, they were getting ready for a battle against the Greeks, um, and even though they lost the battle, they didn't lose the war, so they still maintained their kingdom, um, but the, uh, there was a storm that destroyed a bunch of ships, and he got so angry, he, he took a whip and lashed the sea like a hundred and something times, um, and other instances of his bursts of anger and outrage, uh, but he then muscled the mustered the uh, ships, the navy back again, and they fought again, this time again, they lost that battle. Um, and so Greece remained as a power, but you see Greece is pretty small there on the map, compared to this huge kingdom, and amazing that Daniel, long before this time, prophesied that Greece was gonna be the kingdom that was gonna overtake the Medo-Persians, and that was prophesied even during the Babylonian time, and so you see little Greece there, how are they gonna overtake, you know, that like be like saying Cuba's going to overtake the United States militarily. Uh, but that is what ends up taking place. And so he also had some troubles with, uh, with in Babylon and in Egypt, and he quickly went and got that squared away uh, using a strong arm and force of hand. And so he's recorded there. He ends up dying. He ends up getting killed uh, Um, after I think about 19 years. He he became king when he was something like 35, 37, something like that, years of age. So pretty much later for most kings, becoming king. And uh, again, reigns for about 19 years and ends up getting killed by someone within his court, Uh, one of his generals or someone like that. And and so short reign, relatively short reign uh, and untimely death that way. So, back to Esther, chapter 1, verse 2. in those days when the king sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, one hundred and eighty days in all. That's a long party, right? That's six months. Now, I don't think that he just had one big, huge party for six months. What I'm picturing here is he's just in the third year of his reign, and that's going to be significant. We're going to come back to that. uh, Maybe not this week, but other weeks, so put that in the back of your head. Um, For, so he's just fairly early on, again, he's, he's just had this battle with Greece, didn't go so well, had some troubles with Babylon, some troubles with Egypt, So I imagine he had each of these 127 providential leaders come to the city, come to the citadel, come to Shushan, not necessarily all on the same day, but over a six-month period of time, little by little, to give them a little talking to, to show his majesty, to show his glory, to show his might, to show his army, to show that he's in control, he's sitting on the throne, he's got loyal subjects uh, that are behind him and generals that are with him and uh, that they better not mess up, and and they better stay in line. And so I think he's giving them, basically, their marching orders. And so over the sixth period of time of having all these nobles come, and princes come uh, from the provinces, and come before him at Shushan, I think it took the six-month period of time. And when these days were completed, that six months, The king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Pretty impressive, right? And so sounds very glorious, sounds very rich, and but we're going to see in the next slide really wasn't all that it made out to be, but we'll come back to that. But here he's having a party for just the seven days, and so this is just again for those there close those there in Sushan. and again if I'm correct at the hundred the the six months of feasting, parting was again to show off. Then he had to get the city in line. The city had to work hard. The city had to do a lot in having these, these people come in from various places and to house them and to feed them and and to keep the city looking clean and impressive. Uh, that So at the end of all that he's celebrating with everybody who worked so hard for those six months. And so he has a seven-day feast again to celebrate the completion. Okay, we've We've got everybody in our 127 provinces in line, and, uh, and so now we can t- take a little break and a little vacation from that. until he throws this feast for seven days. We're gonna see the number seven come up several times uh, in the book of Esther as well. So here again, this glorious uh, marble and silver and, and uh, white and blue and alabaster and turquoise and marble, and very, very impressive. Then this next slide, Says, and they served drinks in golden vessels, and each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officials of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So he has all his court officials, and they're telling everyone, you don't have to drink if you don't want to. We're not going to compel you. It's not compulsory. We're not going to force it upon you. But you can drink if you want to drink, and you can drink as much as you want of the royal wine. And so again, he's gone six months of showing off the kingdom to all these people and sharing the glories with them and and food with them. And he's still got all this wine still uh, for the seven days feast. And everyone can have as much as they want, for those seven days, or as little as they want. But even with all that, did you see there where it shows he's really not as rich as it looks? Did you see it? Now let's look again. They served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. He couldn't even afford a matching set. Yeah, so he had to go maybe to a flea market here and a garage sale here, and he just put all these little pieces together to have all these golden vessels. They're all different. They don't even match. Well, maybe it's still rich. Maybe he's still pretty rich even at that. Anyway, let's go back to the story in verse 9. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, I'm sure she had matching sets of everything. I'm sure she had matching gold cups for everyone, matching silverware to match the gold cups, and matching plates, and matching placemats, and matching tablecloths, and matching curtains. I'm sure for her, everything matched. And so she also is having a feast, but for the women. So the men have their party, the women have their party, two separate parties in two separate houses. The king's got his, and the woman has their her royal palace, and, uh, and so she's having her feast also lasting for these seven days. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk, he commanded, and then he's got these seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So he tells these seven eunuchs, go and bring the queen here and show off her beauty. It's the seventh day, the last day of the feast. He's been drinking all week long and now he's really going to town. He's full with wine and he says, bring my queen in, wearing her royal crown. for She is beautiful to behold and I want everyone to see her beauty. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Now, we're not told why. That's all it says is she refused to come at the command of the eunuchs. And he sent seven of them to go and to get her. Now, it could be, and we can look at this two different ways, and we will examine it two different ways for our purposes. Again, historically we don't know, so we want to study the book of Esther. Historically, how it sits in the context of of history and the scheme of things, and that's important, and in context of itself and and the meaning within itself. Now, the book of Esther is an interesting book. It doesn't mention God at all in the book by name. He's not mentioned at all. Prayer is not mentioned, no religious thing mentioned at all in the entire book. And uh, another interesting thing about the book of Esther The Dead Sea Scrolls, they've uncovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments and sometimes whole books of every single book of the Bible except the book of Esther, which is kind of unique and interesting. Now it could, because there's some books that are very small, much smaller than Esther, and yet nothing, no fragment, no nothing. And it could be because God is not mentioned in there. Maybe the Essenes didn't feel like it was a book worthy of recording because there's no God there. God's not in that book, and that could be it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they had some other reason, or maybe they did, and we just haven't found any of the fragments. But uh, in all that they found, they found lots of fragments, lots of pieces of parchments. Uh, they have not found anything thus far of in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Book of Esther. And so, why isn't God in the book? Why isn't he mentioned in the book? It's in the Bible. Obviously, God is in this. as we'll see through the story, that uh, there's a lot of God workings in the story. I have a theory on that, and I think it's because whoever wrote it, and it might have been Mordecai who wrote the book, might have not been writing it for the people of God to read as much as for being placed in the chronicles of the kings of Medo-Persia, that it was for them. It wasn't for the kings of Israel. It wasn't for Israel. It wasn't for the Jewish people. It wasn't for us going down the line. It wasn't for the Bible, but it was just a recording of the events that took place in the king's palace, in the king's kingdom. And we don't have that much archaeological. We have some. Again, a lot of the recordings of this time and this king were from the Greeks, not so much from Persians, because Iran and Iraq aren't that interested in, in digging that information up. So someday we may get a story of the book of Esther or some of the recordings, but right now we don't have it in historical documents, but uh, I believe that this was written for that purpose, to go there, and that's why God is not mentioned. So, but we do want to look at the book of Esther from the historical perspective where it sits, but we still do need to look at it from a spiritual perspective as well. Where is God in this book? If it's not so easy, plainly, here it is here he did this, here he said, let there be light and there was light. But God is there, and so we're going to have to see God in every chapter, and that's going to be one of our, our chores, our, our study, our search to where is God in this book. And we're also going to see how does it apply to us. So with that, let's look at Vashti from maybe two different motives of why she said no. And we'll apply those to ourselves. So let's start with, let's say her reason was a noble reason that the king is asking her to come, and not just to sit beside her as queen, but to come wearing her royal crown. And maybe that meant only her royal crown, to show off her beauty among these drunk men. Or maybe to come and dance before them, or some other way that would be low her standard of morality that she would not think would be becoming, that the motive and she's not just a plaything and she's not just a showpiece. Oh, as a queen, yes, at times to be on the throne as queen, as a showpiece, but not as a a showgirl, to just show beauty uh, for lusting men. And so if that was her motive, knowing what might be the result and the most probable result of a refusal of the king's command should be very noble and bold to take this kind of stand and to say no on principle and principle alone. And there may be times in our lives where we will need to take a stand and say no when maybe our boss or someone in our community or elected officials make laws or some social setting that we're in when we're asked to compromise on biblical principles, on biblical laws. There needs to be a red line in our life, and we're willing to work with those that we can, work with the system, work with the people that we're living under, the nations we're living under, but we still have our red lines of where the Bible says no further than that. There is right, there is wrong, there is truth, there is error. And we need to understand the word properly to understand areas where the Bible gives us some leeway and where the Bible is, things are written in stone. There's some things that are written in stone and they're written in stone for a reason. They're not movable, they're not changeable. They're eternal. And we need to know the difference and the balance between those and to how to follow God. And there are times where it's risky but we see that there have been others that in the Bible that have done that, and since Bible times that have done that. We have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who said, no, we're not going to bow down to your statue. And they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And God delivered them and stood there with them and protected them. There are other times where it didn't always go so well on this earth. They took a stand and stood for the right, and sometimes it meant their death. There were prophets that were cut in half. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit to die. Others were taken and brutally brutally killed. And so there's times to take a stand. And that could be why Vashti is taking a stand here. And there will be a time in our, each of our lives where we need to take a stand. And maybe you're going through something right now. Maybe you're going through some situation now where you're being asked to do something that in your heart and mind and in the word of God you know is wrong, where you're told not to do something that you know is right, like Daniel told not to pray, and he knew he had to pray. And so be willing to step out in God, God's speed and, God's, and faith in God by God's strength, and to do what is right and say no to the wrong and yes to the right regardless of the consequences. And so if you're going through that kind of a situation right now in your life, then I encourage you to just pray, even as I continue on, to, to, to pray and ask God to give you the strength to stand by biblical convictions and biblical truth. But maybe she did it because maybe she was just a rebellious queen. <laughs> maybe she was pompous. Maybe she thought she was better than the king. I don't have to listen to that king he's a jerk anyway, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's drunk, I'm just not going to, I'm just going to tell him no, and there's nothing he's going to be able to do. And maybe she was just stubborn, maybe she was just stiff-necked, maybe she thought she could get away with it, maybe it, uh, the power of the queenhood and the, and the crown went to her head, and maybe she was in rebellion she thought she could get away with it. And that would not be good motives, and that would not be good motives for us as well. We do need to be obedient to the authorities in the land that we are, as long as they don't disagree with the Bible laws, as long as they're not asking us to compromise principle. And again, we don't know really what the king meant by, come and, I'm sure she did, but we don't, come and show your beauty wearing your royal crown. But if it meant, just come sit next to me. You're a queen, I want you to sit next to me. Here on this last day, before I say goodbye to everyone, uh, come and sit with me and we'll both say goodbye together. If that's all he meant, and she still refused, then uh, she's in rebellion. And we don't want to be in rebellion against God or those that God has placed in authority in our lives, whether it's a boss or a principal or a teacher or a homeowner's association, or even if it's gone to their heads, or a police officer or whoever is in an authority figure, again, as long as they don't ask us to compromise the word of God, a written in stone type of word of God, or an important principle in the word of God. So, Vashti says, no. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. And again, the historian tells that he had an angry temper, and, and so he's angry now. And he's just really upset. How dare she disobey me? And the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being, and it gives a list of people, seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence, who ranked highest in the kingdom. And so here again we see seven days, we see seven eunuchs, and now we see seven princes who are his advisors there, and he's asking their advice. What do I do now? The queen said, No, she's not coming. What should I do? And there's a parallel to this in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes, Asharius' son, so this is later on, gave to Ezra the Cohen. Whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so we see two different books of the Bible written at different times, both mentioning that the kings of Persia had seven counselors. So I just put that in there, just again to show the Bible harmony, so the Bible backing itself up, the two witnesses again confirming, which just helps to give us the validity of both books, that they both confirming the same thing. Okay, so back to the book of Esther. Verse 15. What shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs." So he's asking his seven princes, what are we going to do? And Memukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princesses and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. Right? So he reasons, this, this is not going to be good. News is going to get out. All our wives are going to hear about this. They're going to give us problems. They're going to stop listening to us and all the women in the kingdom, and we're going to have a riot going on here. We're going to have a revolt. This is not going to be good. It's a bad example, and we can't allow it to go on. Rebellion can't be, it's not acceptable. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, thus there will be excess contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So he's recommending judgment upon her. She's in rebellion and thus she needs to be removed from her position and not come any more before the king. Now I'd imagine that meant for her. I don't, mean, I don't think it means just put her in a basement somewhere, put her in a side room. I don't think it means let her go home to mommy, because that then would just continue the give her voice of the rebellion, or even just allowing her to live down in a basement somewhere. Word would still get out, she'd still get messages out, and so show, show discord. And so I would imagine this meant strong measures of having her killed because of the rebellion. And we see another parallel here where it says that let this royal decree be written and not be altered, because that's how it is with the Medes and Persians. We don't change, we write a law, we think about it beforehand, we don't alter it, we don't change it afterwards. And we saw that in the book of Daniel, where it says that the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. So again, now we're looking at three different books talking about this same kingdom and how they're parallel together and uh, confirming each other in their view of it. And that's what the wonderful thing of the Bible. We have these confirmations from these different books, different writers, different time periods uh, that, uh, that match up. So the Bible is truth. So where God is God in this? Well if Bashti was in rebellion and the king representing God, and not necessarily in a drunken stupor, but and not every parallel or every example or foreshadowing is perfect. None of them are. Uh, But but in that sense of judging and judgment and Mimikin's uh, advice here, does God ever do that? Is God that harsh? Someone disobeys and boom, have him executed, have him killed, have him cast out of the kingdom. Well, we see he did that to Lucifer. Hadn't killed him yet, but he did kick him out of the kingdom, did kick him out of heaven. And one third of his angels that followed him God had a red line. God had laws and still does. And he did not allow rebellion in heaven. And we see that here on earth as well. When Moses' cousins rebelled against him, God opened the earth and swallowed them up. We see God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and told them, if you sin, you will die If you rebel against my laws, if you rebel against my ways, you will die. And we're not talking about a mistake here. A conscious, knowing what you're doing, choosing to disobey. And they had to leave. We had Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much they sold their land for and how much they gave to the the work of the Lord. And they dropped dead in the book of Acts. If so God is a God of judgment, yes, He's merciful. Yes, He's very merciful. He's long suffering, abundant in mercy, but in no wise will clear the guilty as well. He's merciful, but He's also just. Mercy and justice kissing each other, blended together at the throne of God. We see God's mercy manifested in the Messiah dying for us, but also we see the judgment that the wages of sin is death, that somebody had to die as a punishment for the sin. So judgment is there as well. Judgment that he took upon himself. But we also need to die in him. And thus there is a death to self that takes place. There is still a judgment against sin. We're not able to just continue in sin, just endlessly and openly and rebelliously. God will not accept that here, and he certainly won't let us into heaven. If he kicked Lucifer out for that, and he kicked Adam and Eve out for that. He's certainly not going to let us in for that. So God is long-suffering, merciful, patient, forgiving. But He does have its limits. If rebellion continues after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and we refuse and we refuse and we harden our hearts, we look at how patient He was with Pharaoh. Gave him ten plagues to try and stir him up and lead him to repentance. But there does come a time where we go beyond and commit the unpardonable sin and refuse, harden our hearts so much, that no matter how much the Holy Spirit convicts us, we will not turn. So God is a God of judgment. And Vasti did have to leave if that was, again, rebellion against the king. And so sometimes in our lives, we are placed in positions where we have to make difficult choices. But we have to stand for the right. We can't give in for sin. We can't get into sin. We can't give the impression of evil. We have to have a high standard for ourselves and judge ourselves and tell ourselves, no, no further, we will not. But sometimes God has placed us in positions of leadership, whether in our home setting, or a principal, or a teacher, or a leader, or a community, or you're a leader on a homeowner's association, or in your neighborhood, or here in the congregation, or at work, or wherever God has placed you. And it might be for a time. It might be just for that meeting. You've been asked to be in charge, or maybe because of your knowledge or your skill in that area, you are now an authority in that area. And you have to give your opinion. And you might be in a position to have to tell someone, no, sorry, that's wrong. No, sorry, that is rebellion. No, sorry, that cannot continue here. I was speaking with someone. He called for some advice. He was recently hired to a position that I prayed with him through that whole hiring process. It was a long process, lots of interviews. And they wanted him for the specific position. They even let him write up his whole entire own job description. They told him what he was going to do. So they put him in the position. And he was there for a few months. And he called me and he said that uh, they were getting ready to the big push and big time with it, big season and busy season for that company. And, uh, and there was a person there who had been working there for over two years, longer than he was there. And this person wasn't pulling their weight. They weren't grasping the concept. They weren't grasping the computer software. And no matter how much time he spent and others had spent trying to train him, training this person, she just wasn't doing it. Just couldn't get it. And that the leaders in the company were frustrated with her. And they were beginning to blame him for her lack of abilities. And so I said, well, what are you going to do? And he hemmed, and he hawned, well, we got a meeting tomorrow with the owners, and well, I don't know, I'll tell them maybe, I don't know, and I'll, well, I'm thinking of giving this lady another test, she failed these other tests, I'm I think of giving her another test, a four-hour test, and see how she does with that, and just really wasn't willing to face the reality of what he told me, all the time before that, of how she was not doing miserably and and that the owners really didn't want her there anymore. And so I said, well, uh, you can do that, but do you think she's going to pass the test? No, I don't think she's going to pass the test. Then why are you going to do the test? And it came down to he was being so merciful. (laughs) He didn't want to have to fire her. He didn't want to have to give the pink slip. He didn't want to have to be the bad guy but that was the position he was hired for. And that was the job description he wrote for himself to keep that department in line. And he needed to either step up to the plate or come up with another solution. And so I suggested, well, you can just you know, tell the, go to that meeting tomorrow and, and either give your opinion if you think this lady's never gonna make it, that you think she should be fired if that's what they want but if they want you to train her more and try some more with her, that you're willing to do that. Or tell them that your recommendation is that you think there's still hope and that you're willing to spend some extra time with her and, and train her and try and get her on board if they're okay with that. You know, either way, but take a position. They're looking to you as a leader to take a position. And he did, he finally did take a position and he did go in to that meeting And fulfilled his role for that position. So as believers, we don't like it. It's not necessarily we want to be merciful, merciful, merciful. But as we look at the character of God, God is very merciful, and we should be very, very, very merciful. But we also need to have a time where there's judgment as well in our communities, in our lives, depending on what stage and what position you're in. And maybe you're in a position right now and you're having a hard time making a decision regarding something that's going on in your life. Maybe you're allowing yourself to be abused. Maybe your children are taking advantage of you. I know one person that that one of their children tried to kill her and she still allows him to live in the house with her and he's an adult. But merciful and merciful and merciful. You might be in a position, maybe not that extreme, maybe you're not having to fire someone, maybe you're not having to evict someone, but you need to take a stand. You know it in your heart. God's convicting you, and yet you're fearful of doing it. Ask God to give you the boldness and the strength to fulfill the position he's placed you in right now in making that decision as the leader that he's placed you in right now. To be strong, to make the right choice, To make the right judgment. if it's to be merciful a little longer, then fine. But if it's reached the end of its rope, then take a stand. Or to give the person an ultimatum. You either do this, or by your actions, you're choosing not to be here anymore. Throw it back on them, but then you've got to follow through if they do continue to do that wrong or whatever, to follow through. Okay, back to the story of Esther. Verse 20. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And it's true. Where there is judgment, it does bring fear into the people. Good fear, fear is okay. Uh, At times, godly fear, we should fear the Lord because he is a judge and also because he is great. We have a laxness, think that God does not bring judgment, that God lets everyone into heaven, and it's not true. Not everybody goes to heaven even though I've never been to a funeral where they didn't place that person up in heaven or somewhere, or a better place, they say. I've been to a funeral where the person did not live a godly life at all, and more not a believer at all in any way, shape, or form, and died in an ungodly way. And yet, he went to a better place. That's what they said. He went to a better place. And I thought, and I even said to the person sitting back, if he went to a better place, then let's all go there. What are we waiting for? But we don't all go to a better place. We don't all go to heaven. God is judge, and there will be judgment. And that, among other things, is to strike fear and terror into our hearts and minds. But when we teach that, everyone goes there, there will be no fear. There'll be no fear of the Lord. And disobedience and rebellion against God will continue and multiply. And that's one of the reasons we're having so many problems, I believe, in this country, because for too long, Bible teachers have just been teaching too much mercy, an endless mercy, an endless forgiveness, with no judgment, no no end in sight. And thus, rebellion and disobedience has continued and become more and more bold in this country. Verse 21, the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan, So Vashti was out. And again, if she did it for right reasons, for moral reasons, well, death is not necessarily the end. It's not the end. If we're doing God's bidding, if our lives are right with the Lord, death is okay. Paul was beheaded, and it's okay. And her death paves the way, or her removal, whatever it was, paved the way For Esther, we see that Stephen's death. Obediently, he could have said, no, no, don't throw the stones, I'll I'll recant, I won't, uh, I'll deny that Yeshua is the Messiah. And they would have said, okay, they would have let him live. But no, boldness he preached to them. And when he saw they weren't listening anymore, he condemned them for it. When they picked up stones, God gave them a vision in heaven. He said, look up, I see Yeshua sitting at the right hand of the Father. And it enraged them even more. They threw stones and they killed him. But through his death, Saul, who was there and overseeing the stoning, later on becomes Paul, the apostle, and takes the gospel to the world. And so by Vashti's stand, again, if it was a noble stand, her going down, it paved the way for Esther to come in and continue the work that God had planned. And so if we die standing for the right or we're fired for standing for the right, or they all leave us, Yeshua told his disciples, he told the crowd, you must eat of my my body and drink of my blood, talking symbolically, you need to internalize me. It was a hard saying and they all left him. And he turned to his disciples and said, you guys want to leave too? He was secure. It didn't matter. He didn't change his truth to please the hearers, the listening ears. He told the truth and maintained the truth whether they wanted to hear it or not. doesn't mean we need to be insulting and pushy. We don't change the message for the hearers. There's a the time to speak and not to speak but we don't change it for the hearers. God's word is truth. And so, you might be placed in a position that you may lose your job. You may lose your spouse. You may get kicked out of the school. Maybe you're rejected by your community for taking a stand for God. Again, not for being obnoxious, but if you take a stand for God, on an area that's a red line with God, then loss of jobs, loss of family or friends here on this earth, become unfriended by someone. Even death is not the end. God has a plan. As he did with bringing Saul up, as he did with bringing Esther in, he has a plan. Be faithful to God's plan. And maybe it's... a Close the mouth of the lions and shut them up so they don't destroy you and deliver you. Maybe so Yeshua will stand there in the fire with you and deliver you. But whether he does or doesn't, here on this earth, he will for eternity. And that's what matters. That's what counts. Then they sent letters to all the king's provinces to each province in its own script and to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. I want to see another parallel here. So they sent this to 127 provinces, this message out in all the different languages, but they're saying also that it needs to be spoken by the master of the household. We're sending it to the language of the master of the household. And in the book of Nehemiah, so now our fourth book, chapter which takes place not too far after the book of Esther, chapter 13, verse 23. I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of other people. And so in the book of Esther, it tells us that in the kingdom of Persians, there were some families where they were not speaking the father's language. And the book of Nehemiah says, yeah, they had that problem. Uh, during that time as well. It's again another book in the Bible confirming the Bible, giving validity to the Bible. The Bible is accurate. The Bible is truth. The story of Esther is truth. Even though we don't have a portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls, even though we haven't found evidence of Esther and Mordecai in the, in the deserts and sands of Iran, we know the Bible is true. The Bible confirms itself its message is true, it's historically accurate, and it's important and accurate for our lives today as well. And so as we prepare to pray in just a moment, whichever aspect applies to you in your life today, whether you're facing a decision, whether to stand for the right, you're being pressured and asked to do something wrong, to go and do something you know is not right or pressure to do something that you know is wrong, something you should do or something you shouldn't do. And I invite you in a moment when we pray to ask God to give you the courage and the strength to stand by God's word, by his power, and to do what's right, no matter the consequences. Or secondly, if you're in rebellion, and resisting authority, resisting those that God has placed over you, whether God, whether the Bible, or whether some human person that God has placed an authority over you at this time, and they're not asking you to disobey the word of God. Then ask God to give you a humble heart, to surrender the pride, to surrender the rebellion, to surrender the attitude. Ask God to give you humility, meekness, to surrender and work with the authorities that God has placed in your path. Again, as long as they're not asking you to disobey biblical principles. So if that's the case, in a moment when we pray, let God do his work. Thirdly, if God has placed you in a position of authority and there's some rebellion going on in that situation and you've been called to discipline, to hold the line, to fire, kick out, whatever it takes to punish, to dock someone's pay, whatever it takes. If, if they're in that position this is what your calling is and this is what you have to do, whether it's parent over a child or whatever circumstance you're in, and you're having a hard time with that, and even if you're not having a hard time with it, but you still need God's grace to do it gracefully, tactfully, lovingly, and yet with justice. Then, a moment when we pray, ask God to give you the strength to do that and to represent him properly. Maybe some other area of your life, if you're in rebellion against God, ask God's forgiveness, accept the Messiah's sacrifice in your behalf accept his forgiveness, accept the removal of the sin, and let God do his work. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful for your love and we are thankful for the book of Esther and we're thankful, Lord, for the, if Vashti stood for the right for noble purposes and for morality, we're thankful that you gave her the strength to do that. Thank you for that example. We pray, Lord, that you live in our lives And give us the balance to do what is right and to stand for what's right when we need to stand. Give us the balance to be submissive when we need to submit. Give us the balance to be able to be merciful as leaders. And give us the balance to be able to to enact justice when justice is needed. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.